Alright, if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. For those of you who have not been with us, we are in a series of sermons on the book of Exodus. And today we are finding ourselves here at chapter 5. We also have a reading plan. If you'd like that, I've got uh, maybe a couple copies still left. I can certainly send you one if you would like that. But it's just a reading plan that takes us all the way really through December 1, which is the first Sunday of Advent, and then we'll uh, be in a different series, but hopefully we'll be out of the book of Exodus. I can't, I can't make any promises, but hopefully we'll be out. You get it? Is that not funny? You know, the way. Exodus means the way out, right? So, okay, uh, maybe, maybe the things are not starting off too well with that. But, um, but so let's, let's look here at Exodus 5. And I just want to drop in on a couple verses here and make some observations about almost kind of like getting out and walking around, noticing a few things. Check out the end of chapter 5 of Exodus. Then Moses turned to the Lord, Yahweh, and said, O Lord. Now let me pause there. Did you catch that? There's L-O-R-D in all caps. It should be in your Bible. And then there's regular Lord, L-O-R-D, with just the first letter capitalized. So the first is Yahweh. Anytime it's all caps, that's always Yahweh. So that's God's personal name that was given at the burning bush, you'll remember. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, or Adonai, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Jesus, help us to hear from you today. Lord, if we can hear from you, we've accomplished our mission here at Harvest Point. So we pray for your voice in our spirits, in our hearts. Whisper to us your truth now, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. In Exodus, we begin with slavery. (laughs) Uh, When you go from Genesis, they're doing pretty well in chapter 50. You turn the page and you skip over 400 years to where now the Pharaoh has forgotten Joseph. He's forgotten Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he instead puts them into bondage and starts making them work and building his stuff, building his kingdom. And what you end up having then is evil happening to God's people, this family that God has chosen. How odd of God to choose the Jews, and yet he did. Not because of how awesome they were, it was because the promise that he made to Abraham. And if you will rewind to Genesis 12, the promise is to bless Abraham so that he can be a blessing to all people. So it's not some type of elitism that is only for Jewish people, ethnically, but rather it is they are called so that then they can represent God to all people and bring blessing upon all people. Not just blessed so we can put it in our pockets and save it up in the bank, but instead blessed to share. And this is a principle that you'll find all throughout Scripture, but also here. And now, 
the people groan under this slavery, under this labor and bondage. And the scripture is very clear. God hears them. He sees them. He responds to them because he knows. He gets involved, in other words. And this is something that in ancient Near Eastern mythology, the gods don't do. The gods are not interested in humanity. They're interested in their own projects. They've got their own stuff to worry about. They've got their own bank accounts to fill. And their own wives to take care of. And their own families. And their own kingdoms. They're not interested in humans. And now this God, who doesn't have seemingly any of that, but has instead all power, gets himself tangled up in the dealings of humans. He chooses to listen, to hear, and then the scripture says, and to remember. To remember his covenant. Now I've been to, like I said, a few professional games, and even last time I went to an Alabama game, I I was struck by how it began, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there, and before the game ever began, all of a sudden this video comes on. I don't know if they still do this or not. But it essentially recounted in brevity the history of Alabama football. And so it started off with, you know, this and that. Then it moved to the great plays and then the awesome plays and then championship after championship after championship after champion. Okay, you get the point. You get the point. And I'm like, wow, what, what, is, what is going on here? Why are they showing this video? Before? But everybody's getting pumped up, aren't they? Why? Because they're remembering. It's good of us to remember, isn't it? You know when, and again, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a military person, but I've read and I've talked to military people, and when they put on the uniform, it means something. When military puts on the uniform, it means something. Why? Why do these uniforms? Because of the history of remembering those who have also slid uniforms on and done great things in the name of their country, in the name of their family, in the name of humanity. Well, guess what? We too are called to slip on a uniform of baptism. A uniform of Christ in us. A uniform of love. And when we put it on... Even those days which, when we don't feel like it. Every, every player that has ever played didn't always feel like playing. We had, a, we had somebody that played today, by the way, up on the stage, who had knee surgery this week. We had somebody on the stage that played today that is having voice trouble, and yet they played. They put on the uniform and went out. This is what obedience looks like. It's not something that always looks great and grand and makes for a good story. Obedience looks like waking up and putting on the uniform. I used to umpire, and, and when you put on that uniform, all of a sudden the coaches address you as sir. Now, I was 17 when I started umpiring, right? I mean, but people do the same thing with, with uh, police officers, right? I mean, you may never call them sir in any, any other context. Some kid pulls you over or whatever, but sir, yes, sir, you know. It's, there's something about putting on this uniform. And there's something about putting on Christ every 
single day. It's not a one-time thing. Christianity is not a one-time decision. It is every day we start anew with our Lord. Fresh bread from heaven. Not old, stale bread. You remember, the children of Israel, we'll talk about this, are going to get manna from heaven, but they are not to keep the manna. They go out and gather it daily, except for on the Sabbath. And we need fresh bread every single day from the Lord. We need marching orders every day from our coach. No matter what we're doing and what we're about, we need His blessing on us, His Spirit to guide us. And so, in many ways, this this passage here is a bit striking when you come to it. You're thinking, oh wow, Um, so... God is trying to deliver His people out of this bondage. He's heard them. He's seen them. Now He is, and we've talked about this the past two Sundays, He's started a process of preparing His deliverer, who is Moses, who happens to be drawn out of the Nile, literally an Egyptian called drawn out, Moses, sounds like drawn out. So here's Mr. Drawn Out, who is to draw out the people now. And he spent 40 years in Egypt. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert in Midian. And now he is going back to Egypt for the next 40 years of his life. He will lead the people of Israel. God has prepared this deliverer, this drawn out guy, Moses, to draw out his own people. But God is drawing out his people so that he can draw them into himself. He tells them plainly this. In chapter 6. God delivers us. Not just so we can do whatever we want to do. But instead he delivers us. So we can be in relationship. Union. Communion. With him. It's about God's presence. In our life. And he offers us a uniform. He offers us a spot on the team. (laughs) And the only qualification is to repent and believe. Is to say, you know what? I've tried my way. I've tried going it alone. And I'm ready to be part of something bigger than myself. I've come to the end of myself. The best thing we can do is to empty ourselves And to realize that our identity must be grounded... In Christ Jesus. For He is the great I Am. He is God in the flesh. And this thing of identity struck me as I began to study here before we tackle this interesting text that we just read. Identity. Moses. He says to God, remember at the burning bush, here I am. And then he says right after that in 3.11, who am I? And then he says, I am who I am, God says to Moses, which is the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. And then in Exodus 5, which is our chapter 2, who is Yahweh is the question. And then Pharaoh will say, who is Yahweh again? I don't know this God who is telling me, who is God, to deliver your people? No, no, that's not happening. I don't know this Yahweh. And what we'll cover next week is 
how God begins to reveal himself in power over ten signs, ten plagues. Our identity is one that pop psychology has wrong. It says to look inside yourself. It says go out and explore the world and you'll find yourself. But I've got news for you and it's good news. You don't have to travel the world going to a Buddhist monastery. You don't have to go to the other side of the world or even out of a different state. Today the Lord is ready to meet you and tell you who you are in him. Why can he alone do that? Because he's the maker of all things. He made us. He knows us more than anybody. You read the Psalms and there are these beautiful, personal, intimate stories and prayers of God knowing his people. We'll never find ourselves by ourselves. Even the way we define ourselves includes other people, doesn't it? I say to you, who are you? And you say, well, I was born here. My parents are X, Y. I work there. You, I, am defined by other things, by other people. God simply says, I am. He is the source of all things. And unless we find ourselves in Him, we are but mere shadows of what we could be, of what we should be, and what he's calling us to be. And when we begin to put on the uniform, it may not fit at first. It may be too big. As they used to say in, the, in Mississippi, it may be too big for your britches, you know? But with God's help, we grow. Little by little, he likes things that grow. Have you noticed that in our world? He made the world. He likes things to grow. And some of the most beautiful things in our world, such as a tree, it grows slowly, doesn't it? Some of the grandest things in our world, they grow slowly. And we, too, do not, do not uh, forsake the process that God puts us in to make us like himself, to call us by name. We put on this uniform and it begins to change us. Just like back in the day when I put on the uniform, I felt a little more authoritative when I walked out onto the field to umpire. Now, inside I wasn't. In reality, I wasn't even that good. But I became better as I stayed around umpires and did my best to represent the uniform well. In the same way, we must have a heart that says, Lord, mold me, make me. You're the potter, I'm the clay. And without you filling me, I'm just a broken pot. But when you fill me, and Paul will say this, precious, he puts what is precious, which is his Holy Spirit, into clay jars. Not stainless steel ones, not golden ones, but instead clay. And we are but dust. And to dust we shall return, but what's in this body is what matters. You know how people become beautiful to you once you know them? Is that, I mean, you look at your, maybe your grandmother or somebody else, or, or maybe if you don't have anybody like that, think of someone like Mother Teresa with many lines on her face, 
not on the front cover of any fashion magazine, and yet a beautiful woman. Why? Because of who was in her. God himself, his love dwelt there, and many people were blessed because of it. Sounds like the promise to Abraham was being fulfilled through a woman. Interestingly named Mother Teresa, and yet the biological mother of no one. What a God that is that would bless this woman with a title that she never even held biologically. What does Jesus say? Who are my mother and brothers and father? Those who do the will of our Father in heaven. That's who. If you're doing His will, then you too can be a blessing. You too can be family to those who are fatherless, to those who are orphaned. No, our identity is in Jesus. And, and, I, and I just, I've, I've come to this place in my life, you know, I'm 37 years old, and there are different phases in life that are, that are it's just like you're a different person. I mean, you drop back 10 years and in 10 years, and I, and I just uh, looked at this book the other day called Phases, and it's for children, and, and I just want to share just a couple of things here. Blakely Catherine Dagg, my youngest of, of five, if you don't know, we have four boys and a girl. Um, this is for one and two-year-olds. It says, the phase when nobody's on time, everything's a mess, and one eager toddler will insist... I can do it. Anybody ever experienced that? Let me do it. Let me do it, actually is how she says it. (laughs) Expect families to be late during this phase. You can also look forward to a few fashion statements. Uh, Amen to that. Uh, One of the greatest tensions is I can do it. And as the book says, you've got 884 weeks and counting when they're in this phase, which is pretty sobering. Ty Marshall Dagg, my uh, second youngest, um, kindergarten and first grade, the phase when unfiltered words make you laugh, which is so true. There's some things that come out of their mouth, you're like, what, son? Uh, homework makes you cry, and life becomes a stage where uh, your kid shouts, look at me. Daddy, look at me. Look at me, Daddy. Daddy. He wants to be noticed. Full of personality, memorable statements, uh, Delightful exchanges. Um, when education starts, you've got 676 weeks and counting. Bo Anderson Dag, second and third grade, the phase when fairness matters most. Differences get noticed. <laughs> Bo's like, why is that like that? What is that? And your enthusiastic kid thinks anything sounds like fun. You know, let's do it. All right. Uh, They're very concrete thinkers, it says, enforcing the law in every situation. That's not fair. He didn't do this. They become detectives. You know what I mean? They're like, hey, now he didn't do that. You told him to do. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, son. Thank you. Get off of that. You know, (laughs) you got 572 weeks in count. Baylor Davis died fourth and fifth grade. Now, the phase when friends are best friends, games are for competition, and your confident kid will insist, I've got this. Uh, in this fa- phase, friends matter the most, and everything's a competition. 
and that's certainly the case with, uh, with our Mr. Baylor. He's, he finds everything to be competitive and gets very much passionately into it. You got 468 weeks and counting. Jackson Lawrence Dag, my oldest, sixth grade, the phase when there's never enough groceries. Amen. Uh, too many hormones and a dramatic kid that needs someone to prove who cares. 364 weeks and counting. And I got to thinking when I read that, I wonder what it would look like to keep going. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Each phase we meet, we meet different circumstances, maybe even a different you. You realize there's more to you than you even thought. Retirement, prestige, money, acknowledgement, reward, power, position, authority, health, strength, reputation, influence, family, marriage, only remembering the past, only thinking about the future. I mean, think about when you were young and you only thought... I mean, I just remember listening to some stupid music with my friends and we just dreamed about when we had a girlfriend, you know? And I mean, we just would talk about it for hours. I would never do something like that now. It's a complete waste of my time sitting around and daydream. Do any of y'all do that anymore? I mean, it's like, I don't have time for that. I'm trying to live the dream, you know? And I'm stressed out about it, right? I mean, that's my life now in the 30s, okay? I've got five kids who I'm trying to feed and clothe and discipline and keep alive, which is my probably most important duty as a parent. And to love them. And I don't always do well with it. I don't. Uh, it's tough around our house. It's tough in our, in our family, in our circumstances. I'm sure it's tough where you are in life. For different reasons, maybe. And what, reasons that I can't understand. I would longingly look at your situation and say, Man, I wish I had the security of that. And you're wishing you had the adventure of what I'm going through. Until you join us. Which you can, by the way. If anybody does want to babysit, just slip me your card afterward and we'll talk about it. Just kidding, just kidding. Kind of. We all go through phases, don't we? Moses went through phases. Moses was on the backside of the desert for 40 years before he ever did anything great for God. And it was in the waiting of all of that that God met him at the end of that period of time. That phase of his life. Don't give up no matter what your phase is. Maybe you're thinking you're phasing out. But I've got great news for you. Noah was roughly 500 years old when he built the ark. I don't want to hear any excuses from anybody, okay? That you're too old for this or that. If God calls you to do it, do it. Do it with all the faculties and body and strength you have left. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him out of Ur. Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83, were told in uh, Exodus 6 when they made their demands to Pharaoh. I mean, there was a reason he had a staff. He was done shepherding. He was old, and yet God called him. Paul, as an old man in prison, wrote Philemon. He even says, I'm an old man now, 
That's why the book's so short, you know. <laughs> He's like, I don't have time to sit here and talk to you forever. Receive him as a brother. You understand? It's like receiving me. And by the way, make a room for me because I'm probably going to come and see you. And I want to make sure that both of y'all are reconciled. The slave is our brother. God changes things from the inside out. And for some of us, for me, it takes a long time. I mean, some of the things he's working on me right now, I'm like, Lord, I should have had this taken care of back in my teenage years. Why am I still asking, who am I? It's a great question to ask. And the only answer we need to give is in you, Lord. I am who I am as I stand in you. And I'm nobody without you. I don't understand myself. I seek after this or that when I don't understand myself. We're either growing in Christ, in God, or we're withering. We're either producing fruit or living a barren life. Again, you don't have to have biological children to have children of faith, to be a father, to be a mother to those who need it. I love to see in our own church that type of thing happening. And Paul even envisions this in his epistles, and we can't talk about it now, but he envisions this sort of family of God. Benjamin Franklin said, those who love deeply never grow old. They may die of old age, but they die young. Preparation for old age should begin not later than one's teens, D.L. Moody said. A life which is empty of purpose until 65 will not suddenly become filled on retirement. It's time now to say, Lord, who am I? Just like Moses did. Who am I? Who am I, Lord? Who do you want me to be? Because he knows. He knows why he called you to the position he called you to, just as a good coach does. And you may disagree with it. I do oftentimes. Moses did, didn't he? We, we talked about that last week. And, and even now, in the text that we read this morning, he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why would you ever send me? He's still wrestling with, Lord, who am I in you? What are you calling me to be and do? I can't do this. God's like, good. I like hearing that now. Now we're ready to learn. Now you're ready to grow. He says, you've not done anything to deliver these people. Of course, that's not true. He had been preparing his deliverer now for 80 years. And he was about, he was on the precipice of doing something amazing that we're about to see in next week. But before all of the fireworks start, before all the home runs and touchdowns are thrown, there's a lot of work that goes into it, isn't it? Any good coach will know this, right? There's a lot of work and preparation and practice. I, I love uh, the medical field for this, this for several reasons, but one reason is this. Doctors are always practicing medicine. 
which is a great way to frame what they do. It, they're not experts. They try to be. They want to be. But they still are practicing. I love that because I feel like that's my life in Christ. I'm no expert. Not at all. But I'm practicing. And I practice every single day. And some days it's weaker than others. I'll be honest with you. And some days I fall flat on my face. But you know what? My coaches are saying, hey, let's go. Come on. It's good. As long as you fall forward into my purposes, I can do something good with that. But as soon as you stay down, I can't do anything with that. You got to get up. Come on, get up. You've seen all those probably famous, you know, sports moments in sports history where someone comes alongside somebody else and runs the rest of the way with them. Get up. You see the guy out there. It's a powerful story. I can't even, I don't even know who it is, but I've seen it multiple times. It always brings tears to my eyes. He hurts his leg. You know, he's running on the track and he hurts his leg and, he, and he's trying to hobble along and his dad comes out of the, sta- out of the uh, um, seats. Yeah, stands. And comes right beside him, gets right under his arm, and they hobble all the way to the finish line to finish. And you know what? We've got a father like that. We've got a head coach that's like that. He doesn't just yell at us from the side, come on, you can do better. That's not, that's not, that's not his style. It's not his style. He knows who we are. He knows what we're capable of, and he judges us on that. And all he's asking is for our best. It's kind of cliche, but it's true. And it's difficult to give our best sometimes, isn't it? We don't feel like it. Sometimes we can't see why. You know, it's one of those things where some of those guys on the line, they never get noticed in football. And yet they have some of the most important jobs. Why did that run look so great? Not because, you know, Mark Ingram's looking back and seeing himself on the jumbotron. That's not why it was a great run. It was a great run because it was a great block. Nobody even called it hardly. But somebody was doing their job. How many people would benefit if we started doing our job as Christians? Putting on the uniform every day and practicing love. It's tough to love. It's not easy. It's easy to do everything else but love. But love is our identifying feature as Christians. They'll know us how. By the way we love one another. And we need to love one another well. And it's going to take a lot of practice. (laughs) But you know what? I'm in. Are you in? Let's do this together. It's about being together. That's the whole thing. Is this This whole passage here, Moses is still in these two verses fundamentally misunderstanding what God's going to explain to him in chapter 6, which is this. I'm a God of covenant. I always keep my promises. Just wait, big guy. Look, you don't have to know the overall plan. You don't have to know six steps ahead of you. All you need to do is make the right step right now. Then the rest will come. When we have made the kingdom of God our sole focus, when we look at Jesus Christ, then everything else will be added, he says. We must let 
the world fade away like a, like a racing horse put on blinders that we can see straight ahead to the goal who is Jesus Christ. He is our present. They're still looking for presents, unfortunately. And not only, it's crazy, not only does Pharaoh reject God's request, you know, Moses does in fact go and he says, hey, Yahweh says, let his people go. Let them worship. Pharaoh says, not going to do that. I don't know Yahweh. I know that I'm God. And I know that I have possession of these people. And I don't really feel like letting them go. So, no. But then, the people reject this deliverance too. And it's because they still misunderstand that God is their greatest present. Deliverance is not the key critical issue here. Whether they're delivered from physical bondage or not, He's wanting to deliver them here. We talk about it all the time. There are prisoners that we've worked with in this church that are free as a bird. I mean, they can sing that whole song with the guitar stuff and everything. Free bird. They are free as a bird, and yet they're still in prison physically. You say, how in the world could somebody be joyful in prison? Paul was. Jesus was. He went to jail too, remember? He was executed. And yet joy didn't die. Love didn't die. You can't kill those things. Our suffering, friends, is temporary. And sometimes, just as they're learning here, things are going to get worse before they get better. You remember what happens, right? He comes and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, well, if you've got that much time on your hands to go out and worship and stuff, we've got to pick this up a little bit. Tell you what, we're not going to do any more straw. You can go find your own straw now. And then you still have to have the same quote of bricks. They're like, oh, man. And so then the foreman, he comes, Moses, what in the world, dude? You poke your head up now. We got noticed. You know how it works, right? I remember Justin and I, when we were, we were younger, uh, and we were having a good time playing something, we tried to be really quiet, you know? We didn't want to disturb Daddy, because as soon as you poke the bear, you know what I mean? Then he's going to shut things down. It's like, oh, well, if y'all have got time to play video games, you can fold all these clothes. You can wash the dishes, whatever. Uh, you don't want to get noticed, and now they're noticed, and now they're mad. They actually reject God's deliverance, like... I don't want to do this anymore. Why'd you do this to us, man? And here's God trying to give them something better than what they are even asking for. They're just asking for physical deliverance. He's wanting to give them eternal life. Life with himself. All of himself. He's drawing them out in order to draw them into a family. It's not just emancipation from slavery, it's also adoption into a family. They don't even see that yet, but he knows because he's a good father. I'll end with this. My son, Bo, on Easter, years back, was in a bad bicycle wreck. Busts his lip all up, goes to the hospital. I've told this story before. It's just helpful for me. Forgive me for helping you remember but it's something we ought to do daily, weekly, monthly, as remember. 
And he busted his lip. We had to take him to the hospital. And I knew what was coming. No, he didn't. I'm just like, you know, hey, bud, we got we to gotta go to the hospital and, and get this thing checked out, you know. And, of course, I know it's going to require stitches. I know he's going to be in more pain. I mean, he's already split his lip. Now they got to stick a needle in it. And I know this is coming. And the nurse, the doctor asked us to, to hold him down. So here's my son. Here's his grandpa holding his feet. I'm holding his chest and arms with great force. And he is crying. He's screaming. He's confused. I mean, can you just put yourself in his position, right? I've just hurt my lip, Dad. And now you're going to let this guy that I don't even know stick a needle into it? Are you kidding me? What kind of dad are you? And he's screaming. I'm just looking and I'm saying, baby, it'll be over in a moment. Just trust me. It'll be over in a moment. I love you. I love you. I mean, what else are you supposed to say? I'm crying. Papa's crying. Gamma had to leave the room. I guess Jessica, what, what were you doing? I can't even... <laughs> Stand there crying, <laughs> praying that it hurries up. And they come in with the needle. They do the deed. And the first thing that Bo does after they've got him sewn up is guess what? He gives me the biggest hug and he latches onto me for about 30 minutes. Now, you say, what? What? How? How is that possible? You just allowed him to get hurt even worse than what he was hurt. But it was because I know it was for his healing. And he knew that too. The whole time I told him I loved him. And in our suffering, we can scream at God. We can. He takes it. He's a good father. Scream all you want, seriously. Just don't be alone in it. Just don't be alone. Let him get in your face and tell you that he loves you. Let him get in your face and show you the marks of his own suffering. He's not a distant God to suffering. He's one that comes right into the middle of it. He's not a God on the sidelines that's never played the game before. He's been in the game. He's still in the game. And he's calling us to suffer with him. Did you notice the readings about suffering, <laughs> even in Mark. Hey, let us sit on your right and left. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand yet. It's not about the goodies that we're following Jesus. So often that's all we want is his presence, like Christmas presents. No, seek his face. That's the greatest present. And there's nothing like being in the presence of God as a human, having God live in us. And this is what he invites us to. And I think <laughs> what's made clear in 5 and 6 here is God's promises are coming true. The question is, will we reject him in the suffering? Don't reject God in the suffering. Our identity must be grounded in the one who suffered for us. Our faith must, must be strong to obey Him even with doubts. I don't think this is the right play, God. But I'm going to run it anyway. I'll do what you say.
because I've learned that it's in obedience and faith to you that I know you and I can trust you more. Bo learned that that day. We can learn it too, even in our suffering. There is no other way, friends, to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. My prayer for you on this Team Sunday, and thank you for joining us, and we're about to have some more fellowship and pizza and all kind of good stuff. But before we do that, let's take some time to talk with the coach. He's calling us in, and he's going to send us out. And we're going to go out on mission with him. But let's pause for a moment as we respond to him. Respond today by repenting and believing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have our worship team come and lead us in a song. And I don't, I don't know, does he, can we even...